Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm one of your hosts of the channel, John McMahon, at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. On this episode, I speak with Carolyn Pedwell, Senior Lecturer at the University of Kent, about her book, Affective Relations, the Transnational Politics of Empathy, which came out from Paul Grave Macmillan in 2014. In this book, Pedwell starts by observing that empathy is oftentimes a kind of political obsession, one that's generally viewed as a positive affective attribute to cultivate, and that's used for social justice. However, she argues that in these assumptions about empathy, people don't ask what empathy does, what empathy is, what empathy is in multiple ways, and what the potential risks of empathy are. Thus, she argues that we need to ask how and with what implications empathy is differently felt constructed, and mobilized. She asks these questions in a transnational context. Here she thinks through the ways that emotions are produced through transnational relations of power and how transnational politics work through the circulation of affect, thus attending to processes like empire, colonialism, slavery, diaspora, migration, development, globalization, global media, and much, much more. Pedal argues that we must understand empathy as a social and political relation that involves the imbrication of cognitive, perceptual, and affective processes, but is also linked with conflict, power, oppression, inequalities, but also the potential for transformation. Pedwell thus takes the affective turn in humanities, social sciences, and critical theory, politicizes it, and thinks through its relation with empathy on a transnational scale. Taking up this issue in a truly interdisciplinary work, Pedwell thinks through the ways that empathy might be translated in multiplicitous ways. Hope you enjoy our conversation, and as always, be sure to check out the full book. Joining me now is Carolyn Pedwell, who is Senior Lecturer in Cultural Studies and Cultural Sociology at the School of Social Policy, Sociology, and Social Research at the University of Kent. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to have the chance to talk to you and to be part of it. Yes, this book was an absolute joy to read, so I'm interested to talk to you uh, as well. I was hoping, as is kind of the tradition on the New Books Network, if you could maybe start by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to write this particular book. Yeah, um, one thing you might have noticed about the book, it's pretty interdisciplinary. And I, thinking about it, um, I think that's something that really has characterized all of my research and comes out of my background. Um, So I did an undergraduate degree in politics and English and then went on to do graduate work in gender studies. And then the first job I got was in a media studies department. And now I'm working in cultural studies in a sociology department. So um, I think that that kind of background of working across different fields and disciplines and trying to find connections is is something that's just actually quite fascinating to me in general and informs the way I look at um, a number of different problems that I've looked at in my research and particularly for this book, thinking about how to make sense of what's been called the turn to affect. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
one of the things I guess that's important to the book is is to have an interdisciplinary approach to it, an approach, I guess, that's working across the humanities and the social sciences, but also looking at um, certain aspects of the hard sciences and trying to bring together what um, has been called the discursive and, and the material and seeing what happens um, in, in experiments, I guess, to stage or to track or trace different kinds of conversations in that way. Right. And I think it's a very successful set of experiments because one of the most striking things from the book, for me at least, was the range of kinds of texts, theoretical orientations, uh, disciplinary discourses, and so much more that you're working through. So as maybe we turn to talk about the book more specifically, could you talk some about why it was so important to kind of bring together and challenge so many kinds of intellectual boundaries to talk about empathy and to talk about affective relations transnationally. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe I should, I should take a couple steps back and say sure. how I, you know, why I was interested in empathy in the first place and then why I thought kind of an interdisciplinary approach would be important. Um, I, I guess I started this book probably in about 2008. Um, and at that time I was really starting to notice um how prominent empathy seemed to be across a wide range of sites, um, you know, popular and more minor literatures, um, different kinds of fields and disciplines, um, and especially in the mainstream, but also in many critical literatures, empathy was widely assumed to be um, not only a good thing, but almost a kind of magical solution to a whole range, you know, of, of, of transnational, social, political, cultural, and economic issues, problems, and grievances. Um, there seemed to be this, this um, very seductive idea that empathy could function as a kind of affective bomb um, or, or a means of creating social justice, whatever that might mean in these given contexts. Um, so I guess the first thing I was interested in doing was thinking a bit more critically about empathy in that way of kind of following up some of the earlier uh, feminist, anti-racist, and post-colonial work that had thought about empathy in that way and trying to think about that in a transnational context and, and in the contemporary context, you know, that we are, are working in today, which is uh, neoliberal and, and arguably neocolonial and so forth. Um, the second point that's linked to that was to think about, well, empathy is called for as, as this kind of um, solution or, or effective ingredient that would be important to creating social justice or to building um, effective bridges or, or links or lines of communications between different um, social, cultural, or national groups, um, imagined groups. But um, rarely have people really talked about what the transnational politics of empathy would entail. Um, what does transnationality mean in this context? What would it mean critically to think about um, empathy and the turn to affect more broadly from a critical transnational perspective? So I think those two aims together um, necessitated an approach that was going to be able to follow empathy where it went, um, where it went in terms of different fields and disciplines, how it was conjured um, by different um, theoretical and, and, and political and social voices with different interests and, and different needs that people that wanted empathy to do different kinds of works and seeing how it was being materialized in those ways. 
And it strikes me then that that kind of necessitates a somewhat different research and writing practice for working on a book like this that does track across so many different discourses and kinds of discourses. Um, so what's kind of the process of working on this book like for you then? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think I, I, I started with knowing that I wanted to say something about empathy and transnationality and the hardest thing for me, I always kind of have a pretty good basic sense, at least of the theoretical questions or kind of epistemological questions I want to ask, but it's thinking about what empirical or textual examples would really allow me to kind of flesh that out. I find that a lot harder. I don't usually start with the empirical, which I know is different from what a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was thinking about that, it was 2008, I guess. And so this was when all the hype around Obama was going on. And I was, you know, really swept up in that, I guess I would say, and excited about it. And, and of course, you know, empathy and, and hope were key terms in Obama's campaign and, and kind of his, his modes of, of political communication and the way he talked about his governance. So there was something really interesting for me that, that gave me an empirical example to start working through. And that was the first chapter I wrote where I was trying to think about, okay, you know, in Obama's political memoirs and speeches, this is somebody that is really speaking in a language that's very familiar to those of us who have been working in different parts of thinking about social justice um, and social theory. Yet at the same time, it also is very resonant with quite a different field around, you know, neoliberal economics and so forth. How do we kind of make those connections? Um so that was that was the first chapter that I wrote, and it was kind of a laboratory for for trying to think about um, the question you were asking of how do you how do you take an example and look at the different strands that make it up and and what it means to bring into conversation feminist and anti racist theorists and activists who are talking about empathy that kind of Obama resonates with in certain ways, and people who are writing in the business world that talk about empathy as being a really useful. Um, technique for corporations to use to get inside the heads of potential uh, customers to really see what they would most need or desire or want in a product. And so, Um, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, So I think I I just wrote that chapter and and kind of saw what came out of it. And and in a way, I used the same technique in in the chapters that would follow. Right. And feel free to mark kind of your own processes. You were working through the chapters as you and I discussed them. But before we get to kind of some of the more details going on in the book, perhaps we could think a bit about what affective relations or the relationality of affect entails for you. So you could maybe discuss what that particular term does and what work it does for the project. And then maybe also a bit about how it relates to the many discourses of affect and emotion that are part of the affective turn. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess relationality um, is something, is a key term that's probably been central to the various research projects I worked on. Um, and I guess it takes shape in a number of different ways in this project. The first one is to say, in order to think about how affect works, what emotion does, um, how to think about you know, the social or the political in relation to effective processes, we need to be able to have ways of trying to think about how the emotional and 
um, the structural, the social, political are, are intertwined? How are they related? How do we understand those relationalities? Um, and, and I mean, that was, you know, a way to have a starting point of saying emotions are not universal. Um, they're, they're not merely individual or personal, of course. They're produced in and through structural relations of power, but not in a, any kind of straightforward or deterministic way. So relationality was a way to try to um, grapple with, with complex um, relations between embodied processes, um, physiological reactions, um, emotional imagination, feelings between people, um, uh, you know, feelings um, between groups and kind of formations um, of power, social, economic, political, cultural, and so forth. How do we kind of make those connections? Um, another way that, that relations or relationality is important in the book is to say that actually empathy as an emotion often is only produced, noticed, or makes sense in relation to its interactions with other emotions. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was doing this research is so as how often empathy is positioned as kind of singular and, and, and magical and, you know, as if it's kind of separated from, from feelings that, have, that tend to be positioned as, as negative or, or messy or kind of things we want to get rid of. So relations was about thinking about, well, how do we understand the relationship between empathy and shame? And might you need actually empathy and shame to happen concurrently in order um, for empathy to be meaningful in a particular way? Or what role might anger play in relation to empathy? So even though empathy is kind of a key word in the title of the book, I was interested in the relation between different emotions, affective states, um, relations of feelings. Um, and I guess one of the key debates that has animated the turn to affect, I guess, in the last 10 years is, is a good question of, well, what is affect? What is emotion? How should we theorize these terms? Um, a number of people, I guess, notably, well, most notably, Brian Masumi have argued that they should be seen as distinctly different. They pertain to different orders, different systems. Um, you know, affect is kind of not captured by discourse. Um, it's, it's free flowing. And in some definitions, it pertains more to um, autonomic or kind of non-conscious processes. And on the other hand, emotion is kind of what we call um, feelings once they become captured by discourse, once they become bounded in a certain way. And I think that those um, two ways of thinking about it, those ways of thinking about the division between emotion and affect um, can be analytically useful. Um, it can be um, helpful, but I, I, I actually am more interested in how affect and emotion and feeling and other terms kind of overlap um, and how it's, not possible to make um, any definite or finite separation between them. So that would perhaps be a third understanding of relationality that comes out in the book. What are the relationships historically and in the contemporary context between all these different terms that we have to talk about affect, emotion, feeling, sentiment, mood, and so forth? Right. And I think that messiness is, is very generative as, as one reads through the book. So I certainly appreciated that in particular regards to kind of some of my own work in affect as well. 
And mm-hmm. so one more kind of preliminary question before we really do get into the various chapters of the book is talk about what the transnational entails for you and why the trend, why transnationality is so necessary for thinking through affective relations and thinking through empathy, especially in terms of global power relations, colonialism and neocolonialism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess one of the key ways I talked about transnationality in the book, drawing on, you know, important genealogies of feminist and post-colonial writing, especially was to think about um, how time and space um, get refigured um, when we think about not just nations um, or cultural groups as bounded entities, as separable, but to think about a kind of ontological transnational relationality where border crossing processes, um, where exchanges between um, uh, places, people, groups have something that's been ongoing before we could find a, you know, an origin point, that this is something ontological. Um, so, and then trying to think about that in more empirical terms to think about, well, how do we make sense of our world today as a product of histories of slavery, um, forced migration of processes of coloniality and, and post-coloniality and continuing decolonization uh, more contemporary processes of um, structural adjustments and international development, neoliberalism and and biopolitics, um, and things like the production of global media and popular culture, international security paradigms. Um, I could list other examples, but it's to think about how different overlapping and continuous processes constitute a world where it's never possible to talk about um, a nation or a culture or an ethnicity as if it's singular and bounded, that we're always talking about a kind of ontological um, movement, um, exchange, crisscrossing, uh, imbrication um, of, of people and places uh, and histories. So I guess then the question is, well, what does that mean for how we think about emotion what does that mean for how we think about the ways that um, feelings uh, affects emotions and the way that they under we understand these categories and what they do translate across space and time? What frameworks can we have for understanding those diverse translations and and what they mean for kind of the ways that that feelings materialize politically? Yes, and I think, and that's the other thing is that I think it seems to me that this turn of the transnational is one of the most important modes of politicizing affects for you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think um, as soon as you are foregrounding the transnational and transnational politics, then you can't kind of rest on easy um, universalisms, uh, set categories, um, static truths or, or kind of ways of thinking. Everything's um, in movement. Um, and I think that's, that's really important for, for politicizing empathy or affect more generally, um, that we're thinking about movement, we're thinking about relations between, between people, we're thinking about um, economic relations um, that are fluid, that are political. Um, so what one one outcome of that is that empathy can't just be posed as an abiding 
kind of solution or effective bomb that it it itself is is multiple it's fluid it means different things in different contexts um it's materialized and felt potentially differently in different contexts um so yeah i think that 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 movement and that translation and that kind of thinking about um feeling itself being materialized differently and with different political implications as is probably central to thinking about the relationship between emotion and transnational politics right and as we perhaps turn to the first chapter now where you're one example of you complicating calls for empathy as a way to achieve social justice where perhaps i could ask you to expand a bit um and articulate what the Im- implication of, say, Barack Obama's invocation of empathy in his political rhetoric and pop business discourses about the empathy economy and so on, how those work perhaps in similar ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so in many ways, I found reading Obama's um, first two memoirs very engaging, very interesting, very, very seductive. I think the language he used, as I mentioned, resonates in some ways very strongly with, with a kind of feminist anti-racist um, politics that, that I'm very familiar with. But what was interesting to me too, when I was reading his memoirs and then later a wider range of kind of political speeches from his, his office and other forms of political communication is how much they simultaneously chime with a very familiar kind of neoliberal rhetoric about personal responsibility, um, you know, self-enterprising, um, having an obligation to be the best that, that one can be both as an individual citizen and as a nation. Um, so I was trying to think about, well, how do those two things work together? How can, how can this be, um, a set of discursive practices that sounds both very feminist and anti-racist and concerned with social justice, but at the same time, um, you know, actually speaking in a very similar language to uh, corporate and professional business literatures that are invoking empathy as an effective technique used to generate greater global economic competitiveness and profits. Um and it's not surprising, of course, that, that Obama's discourse is, is neoliberal in any way. But it, it is interesting kind of how these different things come together um, in, his, in his political communication and the role that, that empathy plays there. So um, in, the, in the business literatures, empathy is seen as kind of a universal um, instinct. It's something that everybody has or has the potential to kind of to kind of cultivate. And it's something that corporations specifically should cultivate because it's almost um, an effective mind reading practice to look into the, the minds and hearts of potential consumers or customers and to think about what what would they really want? What type of product would they want? What what would they need? Um, and to use empathy as a, as a technique to think about, well, how can we improve our competitiveness? How can we um, create, um, you know, greater profits? It's in this context, although the language of care, uh, concern, um, compassion, and empathy are used, this is not, you know, about social justice. It's, it's about um, profit accumulation and creating economic value. Um, and in many ways, those... Um, 
goals, of course, central in, in Obama's discourse as well. So that was how I started trying to think about some of those connections. Right. And one of the things that is happening throughout the book is you noting the ambivalence of empathy. And so kind of the way I read it, it almost works on two levels, whereas perhaps as you've discussed already, kind of the, the intuition is that empathy can be something that's just simply good. You want to complicate that. But you also are very careful to say that there's no easy good or bad distinction between different kinds of empathy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's certainly an important point. So what I was trying to do in this chapter and and in some of the other ones where I was talking about empathy in the context of neoliberalism is not to set up, as you suggest, a kind of good-bad divide where bad empathy works in the interests of neoliberalism and global capitalism and good empathy would somehow be outside of those paradigms. Um, the point I try to make is that no such divide is possible today. Um, you know, as, as academics, um, as, as professionals, we're all working within a context that's constituted by a range of, of shifting and changing neoliberal discourses and practices of governance. So it's not that we can stand outside that or somehow purify emotional discourses or, or strategies or emotions themselves, perhaps, from this context. But we can think about their ambivalence. We can think about both the ambivalence of neoliberal practices themselves and the ambivalence, um, as you suggest, of, of emotion and affect. So I guess in the, the first chapter where I'm talking about um, empathy, Obama, neoliberalism and, and business um, discourses, I'm looking at some of the cracks and crevices that emerge um, so I was thinking about, okay, well, what happens when we move outside Obama's political, um, you know, memoirs and speeches themselves, and we think about Obama mania mm -hmm. as a wider, you know, set of processes and discourses of empathy, hope, and and you know, other ideas um, and and effective relations. How can we think about the ambivalence of empathy and its relation to hope? There is is there more going on there? And and I mean, one of the arguments I make is 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 there is, is that empathy is not just reduced to um, an effective technique of, of profit accumulation or kind of a, an emotion that can be serviceable to the interests of, um, of neoliberalism, that, that people are using um, or engaging in relations of feeling in ways that, that themselves point at these ambivalences, you know, ways that point at how emotion or hope can function to include some and, and exclude others, that people are having these conversations, you know, on, on Twitter or other social media or, you know, in various political forums that in this way, um, empathy functions as um, a space of political mediation in, in some interesting and critical ways. Right. Now, keeping in mind with the interdisciplinary and kind of multiplicitous nature of this project, um, could you maybe walk us through a bit how work on both Black radical imaginations and queer futurity and hope helps you do that particular work in this chapter? Yeah, so, um, yeah, certainly in terms of thinking about Black radical imagination, um, it was Robin E. Kelly's book, and, and Sarah Ahmed recommended um, that book to me to think about the histories and genealogies of, of Black radical thought. Um, one of Kelly's arguments is that both empathy and hope have been central to many forms of black radical thought. Empathy um, as a way to kind of 
imagine and recreate um, past horrors, for example, associated with histories of, of slavery and segregation um, and their obviously ongoing effects. Um, but at the same time, to, to link that to, to hope and a kind of radical hope um, that things could be different than how they have been and how they are today, that there are alternatives, that to think radically, to think through radical hope, to join to an empathy, um, gives you both an understanding of social realities and an ability to see how things could be otherwise. Um, and so um, it was interesting to think about how, although Obama, for example, draws on you know neoliberal discourses and um, ways of governing, that the, that particular seeds of, of kind of that um, effective politics of black radical imagination can be seen in his writing and in the ways that the kind of affects associated with him as a figure have circulated more widely um, through Obama, um, Obama mania. And, um, you know, there, I think there's, there's connections then to be found in some of the critical feminist and queer literatures, um, um, you know, thinking about um, queer practices of um, thinking about futurity. I was using Jose um, Munoz's um, fantastic book to think about also, you know, radical hope in another way. Um, and and thinking about temporality, I guess, joining empathy and hope means thinking about time in certain ways. It means thinking about um Time is not unfolding in a kind of linear or set way. Um, it's it's thinking about different kind of temporalities happening at the same time on top of each other. That if we look back to the past, we can think about um, things that have happened, but we can also think about how things could be otherwise, how they could be otherwise in the past, how they could be otherwise now. Um, I mean, I'm getting... <laughs> I think I'm getting a bit out of hand in <laughs> talking about this, but I guess that, that those literatures and the kind of um, anti-racist feminist and, and queer um, texts about, um, you know, social justice and emotions give us tools to think about time and space in relation to the politics of emotion in productive and interesting ways. Right. And I certainly would like to return to this question of temporality and space um, in some of the later chapters where you're working with uh, post-colonial literary works. Um, and then in the second chapter, I want to kind of pick up here on what you're doing more so with anti-racist and feminist theory more specifically. And so chapter two is working with bringing together anti-racist and feminist theories of um, of empathy and social justice. It's bringing in work on affect and visual culture and media and the international development literature. And here mm -hmm. you're kind of engaging in a sort of uh, critical examination of discourses about self-transformational empathy and the distant other in the context of colonialism and neoliberalism. So here, why and how do these texts of international development um, immersion programs help us think through these connections between empathy, post-coloniality, and neoliberalism? Mm -hmm. um, I think international development as a kind of set of practices and discourses works well to bring together um, empathy, neoliberalism, and post-coloniality um, for a number of reasons. I mean, we can think about international development as something that um, 
comes together in certain ways in the post-colonial era as a product of kind of structural adjustments. So those post-colonial legacies are very much part of how um, international paradigms um, have been formed and kind of what they have to, to grapple with. Um, and, and certainly, you know, in more recent decades, kind of neoliberal imperatives for how international development should work have, you know, been, been central to the way that various international and national organizations have been organizing um, and talking about development. Um, and probably the most recent development, or at least talked about most recently, is the role of emotion and affect in international development that, um, you know, emotion and, and how people feel, how people feel both um, development workers and officials and those that their work is meant to be for, what types of feelings, relations of feeling, uh, emotional development, um, aspirations and, and hope and so forth, what's going on there is seen as not peripheral to, or tangential to international development work, but potentially central to, to certain projects that are carried out. Um, so I was interested in, in how those types of issues are being talked about and playing out in um, programs called immersions. And immersions um, are where international development um, workers or, or officials or government officials associated with those agencies, usually based in the global north um, or west, but sometimes in the capital cities of, of countries um, in the global south or other locations, are sent for four or five days or, or you know, maybe a week to live with um, a so-called poor family in a so-called developing context. And these are people who may, um, you know, the international development workers or government officials who may ha have had um, no other reason to be in that context. And what I was interested in is how much of a central role discussion of emotions and, and empathy in particular plays in the ways that these immersion programs are talked about, um, how they were seen as good practice, what the outcomes of them are understood to be, that empathy is seen as the generation of empathy, of kind of being on the ground in this particular location, of seeing the, you know, potential hardships um, and struggles that poor families are going through to negotiate a life in poverty, that actually facing that um, reality face-to-face, uh, -face, you know, in a kind of emo um, embodied, visceral way, that that this is what's necessary to create empathy on the part of development, uh, development um, senior development people or, or government workers, and that this empathy will be important uh, and necessary to creating socially just um, or productive uh, pro pro poor is a word that that's used in the discourses um, policies. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot of questions to be asked about that. Um, what does it mean to kind of um, really put an emphasis on the emotional truth that can be gleaned by being empirically face to face somewhere? Um, you know, I think. One of the arguments I tried to make in that chapter is that if if before we kind of had this um, objectivist idea that in order to to be rational and, and objective or whatever, I'm thinking, you know, into genealogies way back of, of thinking about how knowledge um, should be produced, that emotion and affect should be kind of 
subtracted or, or cleansed out of that process that in this example and several other sites, we're kind of um, seeing the aftermath of that, that emotions and affect now are figured as being, you know, straightforward messengers of truth, of, of objective reality. And, um, then, and then in what ways, as you argue in the book, does this often end up reproducing inequalities between different kinds of subject, affective inequalities, inequalities of geopolitical power relations, and so on? Yeah, so, and then that's the important question. So, I mean, the first point would be to say that in the ways that these programs were talked about in, you know, the international development journals um, that were discussing them, you know, it's notable that we're talking about these affective journeys of self transformation, these journeys of coming to empathy through being part of the emergence programs, it's all always the development workers and the government officials. It's always the twists and turns of their affective journeys that are being described, that are kind of being pulled apart, that are being grappled with. Um, and this might be important um, in a number of ways. The problem, though, is that the 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 kind of so-called poor family, the the hosts in so-called developing contexts, their emotional journeys are actually given very little attention. So we have empathy, we have kind of the development officials and, and other workers having the chance to kind of develop empathy as an effective skill to develop their um yeah, their range of kind of affective and, and ethical um, skills and, and capacities where the kind of um, recipients of development work um, are once again fixed in place and, and really seem to have quite a flat um, affective life. And so there's the question of, well, at an effective level, the level of effective politics, what's happening there? Are, are relations of power actually being disrupted or are they being reified? Um, in certain ways. And I think maybe a second point is when emotion or affect produced through a face-to-face encounter is understood as a route to seeing a truth, you know, of, of kind of really being struck by a reality of a situation, how do we take into account, you know, all of the, the, the histories, the discursive, um, you know, social post-colonial histories, which construct how people see, you know, uh, that, that create locations for people to approach the world and through this discourse of emotion as, tr- uh, as truth, all of these kind of, um, you know, layers of, of history and power and politics that construct interactions as they happen are kind of taken out of the picture. And so we're reduced in some ways, I think, to this idea that a one-on-one encounter that is unmediated by histories of power, the idea that that could could happen if it's at an emotional level. Right. And chapter three, then, I think, takes up very interestingly and very productively this kind of dual question of how does one confront these forms of empathy that might reify um, particular forms of inequality on the one hand, and on the other hand, how does one introduce alternative and different temporalities into discourses and assumptions and practices related to empathy. And here in chapter three, you do so through a reading of Jamaica Kincaid's work, A Small Place. So to get into some of these questions, maybe you can start by talking about how Kincaid's work and how your work with Kincaid 
um, trace other affects that work around or potentially with empathy, for example, shame, anger, melancholia, and so on? Mm-hmm. Um, I first read Kincaid's A Small Place when I was um, an undergraduate um, in in Canada, taking Canadian and post-colonial fiction, I think, as one of my courses. And so I, I remembered it, um, but I didn't encounter it again until a few years back when I was teaching at Newcastle University. And one of my friends was uh, teaching a course on post-colonial literature, and this was one of the texts she assigned. And she said that every time she assigned it, um, her students, uh, some of them would get really angry about it, um, that there was quite a hostile reaction to this, to this text. And it kind of was always a bit of a problem in the classroom. What do you do with this affect and, and where is it coming from? So that kind of reminded me of this book and made me want to think about kind of the effect of politics in, in the writing of it and its reception. Um, as um, you might, well, as, yeah, as, I think lots of people probably know this, this text. It's, um, it's told from the perspective um, by Kincaid or Kincaid's narrator of um, a white European or North American tourist arriving in Antigua um, in an airplane uh, into the airport and all of the kind of, you know, beautiful scenery that they'll see when they come in, imagining this, you know, fabulous holiday that they've saved up to go on for, for 10 days to escape, you know, the hustle and bustle and stress of life in a big city. Um, and then, you know, right away in the first, um, you know, page of the book, Kincaid's narrative says, of course, since you're thinking about all these great things and, and, and you know, looking for turquoise water and beautiful palm trees, you won't stop to think, you know, about how people survive when, you know, actually clean, fresh water is, is very hard to come by. And, you know, you won't stop to think when you're swimming in this beautiful water of, of all of the, um, you know, thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of slaves that have drowned in these waters. So, you know, right away, kind of the reader, whoever they are, is um, given a sense that this will not just be kind of a pleasurable literary tour kind of of the island of Antigua imagined by Kincaid's narrator. This will be um, an effective experience for the reader where they um, are being asked to kind of be be held to account as this imagined tourist is for kind of what where they might be figured in this um, tourist economy in Antigua in the late 1980s that, that Kincaid's laying out and how to think about how this, you know, tourist economy of the 1980s is inseparably linked to histories of slavery and colonialism and in the Caribbean um, and elsewhere. So I was interested um, in this book um, Thinking about, you know, my colleague's anecdote about how her mainly white middle class students were getting very angry about it, because I suppose that some of them felt that they were being interpolated as this white middle class North American or or European tourist that Kincaid talks about. And they didn't want to see themselves in this position, this very kind of stereotyped, um, you know, position. And I want to think about what that meant. Um, and I was also interested in the fact that, you know, I think maybe some of these students and other commentators of the book have seen Kincaid's mode of address as very hostile, very uncompromising, very angry. 
But to me, what was interesting is that her style, her way of talking could actually be understood as empathetic. It's a mode of empathy because she as narrator inhabits um, the, the mental world, the kind of journey that this imagined tourist would take from getting on the plane and landing in Antigua and negotiating, um, you know, the island as a tourist. That this, is, this mode of imaginative reconstruction is a mode of empathy. So what then does it mean to think about empathy as not necessarily being about care, um, you know, concern for the other, about um, sympathetic um, relations or compassion? What does it mean to think about empathy as being potentially angry, uncompromising, um, determined to hold people uh, to account um, for relations um, of violence and, and power? How does that help us try to think about empathy in different ways to how it's been positioned as kind of affective solution or bomb um, to, you know, all sorts of problems in the mainstream discourses? Right. And then part of that, at least in Kincaid's work, is to confront and you use the term confrontational um, empathy here in this chapter and elsewhere to confront the reader with different kinds of temporalities besides the temporality of them on vacation or the temporality of their lives, wherever their home country is from. So um, what's the relationship between empathy and temporality or empathies and temporalities in the plural? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the first thing to say that I think in the mainstream, empathy has an implicit temporality, a linear temporality, like when it's invoked as something positive, as something that we need, there's an idea that empathy will have a linear trajectory where once we generate enough of it, we'll reach a point of, you know, nonviolence or reduced antagonisms or, you know, better relations of of feeling uh, among people and, and, you know, social justice, whatever it might mean in a given context will be created. That there's idea that time will move in a linear fashion and progressively. Um, So, you know, I guess one of the things about thinking about the relationship between empathy and temporality is to try to, to scramble that a little bit, to try to think about, well, what does it mean or how does um, thinking about emotion and affect enable us to think about how there are multiple temporalities going on at the same time, how people live in and through different relationships with time, different temporalities in given contexts. Um, why would the past, um, in the case of Kincaid's novel, histories of slavery, colonialism, structural adjustment, seem much more recent or much more in the present for some people in circumstances, certain circumstances than they would for others? Why does slavery seem like something that's hundreds of years in the past done and over for um, certain white middle-class American or European tourists that Kincaid imagines, or why might it? And why then might for people that she also imagines who um, are living on the island, might it seem very much here today in different forms? Um, And, you know, I think for Kincaid, empathy is, you know, the, the empathetic technique she uses as a narrator enables her to show, to highlight, to kind of activate those temporalities. But she's also calling on the reader in a certain sense to generate um, 
a particular kind of empathy that, that can understand that, that, that can understand, um, you know, that, that temporalities and spatialities are produced through politics, that people live in relation to time and space differently because of how, you know, um, structures of power are organized. Right. And thus, as you discuss the importance of something like shame or mm-hmm. anger um, in generating alternative kinds of empathies. Yeah, I think in the mainstream, it's kind of also like empathy is understood as what can overpower bad feelings, what could get rid of shame or anger um, or other feelings that are uh, usually thought of as things that are detrimental or that, you know, we need to overcome. So one of the things that I think Kincaid does and that I was interested in this chapter is what would it mean to think about anger and shame as potentially important, um, inevitable, you know, useful and productive and, you know, always kind of bound in certain ways to empathy. So I think that Kincaid, um, you know, in the first place, rather than trying to kind of um, garner empathy from this imagined tourist and the reader that she's imagining may in some ways, um, some readers may fit the position of the stereotypical um, tourist. And in, instead of trying to enlist a, a kind of universal empathy for the situation and plight of, of, of you know, certain um, of people living in Antigua, in the first instance, it seems that the Kincaid tries to create shame, shade on the part of this imagined tourist for their um, complicity in these in these histories um, of slavery and colonialism and structural adjustment and the ongoing effects of, of these histories in this context. But at the same time, you know, I don't I don't think that Kincaid is arguing, and I don't want to argue that shame is necessarily you know more important or more effective than empathy, but that that feeling shame might enable empathy to move beyond a kind of narcissistic um, relation to to the self of wanting to see the self. Uh, in a certain way, that you might need both empathy and shame happening together to actually see some sort of effective relation that could, you know, do more than than either emotion does alone. Right. Now, in Chapter 4, you turn to a, a different post-colonial literary work, Amanada Forna's Memory of Love. So mm-hmm. how does her work um, help us move toward empathy as what you call affective translation? And away from empathy is something like knowledge or equivalence or truth. Yeah. So um, Amanetta Forna's novel, The Memory of Love, is set in Sierra Leone um, across two different timescapes. But much of the story is told um, after the end of the 11-year civil war in that country. And it's happening kind of at the beginning of the the decade of the 2000s, uh, you know, 2000, in the early years of, um, after the year 2000. And quite a bit of the story is told from the perspective of Adrian, who's a clinical psychologist working in London in the UK, who goes to Sierra Leone with um, the hope or the desire to kind of help people who have been the victims um and in some cases, perpetrators um, of this violence to kind of help people heal, to to play a role um, in in really helping the nation heal. And he's also looking, you know, for something in his own life, for some sort of affective transformation that will give his life 
meaning. Um, and so Adrian goes to Freetown in Sierra Leone, uh, equipped with a certain kind of empathy. And it's an empathy that seeks knowledge about this very, to him, culturally uh, different um, place, that the kind of empathy that he understands, that he wants to build, that he thinks will make him able to help people there is one that seeks to gain accurate, um, precise cultural understanding about the place, about its history, about its people. Um, he seeks a kind of empathy that works through cultural mastery. If he could just really understand everything, if he could understand what has happened, um, how people are the kind of different um, languages, um, you know, emotional norms, um, ways of interacting, then he would really be able to do something. And I think in my reading, um, through the course of, of, of Forna's novel, this type of empathy that, that you know, empathy is cultural mastery of, of seeking um, accurate knowledge is shown to be um, often ineffective for Adrian and, and problematic, that it's a kind of empathy that really seeks mastery without opening oneself out to being vulnerable, without opening oneself out to actually being affected by what is perceived as being foreign. And so it's only when, when this character, Adrian, is able for different reasons, um, one of them being that he at one point becomes ill with malaria, is able to kind of um, engage in a different type of empathy, a different type of affective practice, which is one about, um, to a certain extent, becoming vulnerable, about thinking about what would it mean to really be affected by what is experienced as different um, as difference to be affected by or to to not expect that you can fully know something that is different to you, to not expect that you could master that difference, but instead to be open to being affected by it, to be being affected by the way that temporality and time seems different, to being affected by... Um, the different emotional norms and, and practices that he's um, um, that he encounters, but I think also to being politically challenged. Um, the character is politically challenged to really interrogate his habitual ways of thinking and feeling, um, to interrogate how his very ways of feeling, his emotions, um, are interlinked with um, with power, with histories um, of of power that um, make him see and feel in certain ways. Right. And there's a different kind of affective translation at work in the fifth chapter of the book, um, mm. which takes the form of uh, a critical rereading, or we might say appropriation of the age of empathy by Franz de Waal. Um, mm. Could you maybe give us a little bit of background on that work, walking us through perhaps both the, with kind of, political assumptions or presumptions that are attached to it, and then how you reinterpret and disrupt those political assumptions to mobilize the work in a different way. Yeah, so this is this last chapter was moving to, I guess, quite a different realm than some of the other ones, because it was trying to think about how empathy is conjured in some of the um, both kind of more academic uh, scientific research on empathy, both in neuroscience um, and other fields, and to think about the popular science of empathy. Um, 
And so I picked um, Franz Duval's book, The Age of Empathy, because it's been a bestseller. It's circulated widely. Um, Duval is um, an ethologist. Um, so the research is about primate behavior and what we can understand about um, relations between primates and what's fundamental. Um, the book is sold as being um, a powerful counter-argument to the, you know, long-held assumption that both, you know, primates and by an extension um, humans are fundamentally violent, aggressive, competitive, and so forth. Um, the book is sold as, as telling a much warmer, um, fuzzier story about human uh, primates and humans being fundamentally empathetic. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting link or, or translation made between the scientific research that's um, reported, that's talked about, and what that might mean for how we can understand society and how it can work. Um, and so the one of the you know taglines of the book is um, greed is out, empathy is in. And the argument that, that Duval makes kind of in the popular science discourse is that, you know, once we understand that, that primates and, and humans are um, essentially empathetic, that this will allow us to pave the way for different ways of organizing society that actually it, it naturally makes sense for society to be organized along um, lines of reciprocity, cooperation, um, and social justice, not in terms of profit accumulation, greed, um, you know, and violence. Um, but I was interested in looking beneath kind of that way that the book is sold to actually think about what types of um, arguments are being made for the science of empathy and and actually how it's a much more ambivalent and complex story than that Duval is telling. Um, and I, I kind of return here to some of the techniques used in the first chapter to think about um, contextualizing popular science and Duval's book in particular in the context of contemporary neoliberal discourses and forms of governance. And the argument I make is that actually, um, you know, Duval's empathy isn't necessarily about cooperation or reciprocity per se. It, it, it's about self-interest. Um, there's a quite strong kind of centrist neoliberal agenda being articulated um, politically in the book and, and therefore kind of some of the, the scientific data, the, the research on primates is being inflected with that political aim. Um, and this is in a context where, you know, Duval and, and, other scientists have said that, well, you know, science is the only true discourse that can talk about the nature of, of humans and how they are because it is, you know, free from ideology and from politics and so forth. And, you know, I was wanting to show that, well, no, it's very much produced through the political, that the very way that the science here is being materialized is um, working in in certain political ways, um, and, and specifically to, to argue for, um, some centrist neoliberal, um, ideologies. So I guess the interest I had in how science, the science of empathy or sciences of empathy might then be translated differently. If there's no kind of original, like originary science that's free of power or politics, at what different points might we translate 
differently? Might we understand um, some of this research about mirror neurons in this context and empathy as working potentially to support other types of political um, goals and aims? How might we think about empathy, not in terms of neoliberal um, responsabilization, but rather about transnational solidarity? So I was trying to, I guess, read some of the um, Duval's book and other kind of neuroscience scientific work about empathy against the grain through cultural, um, political and social theory to think about how it might be reinterpreted differently to support um, a kind of vision of affective solidarity rather than um, a neoliberal politics. Right. And perhaps that gives us a good note to, to close on as I've taken up much of your time already, but maybe you could kind of um, offer some summary comments kind of in the spirit of interdisciplinary of interdisciplinarity of this project, um, how you're kind of reassembling some of these chapters and different works and discourses together in the conclusion to think about the transformative potential of empathy in its relationality and its transnationality and its ambivalence and what you call its afterlives and so on. Mm, yeah, I guess what I've tried to do in the book as a whole is to, you know, be critical of the ways that empathy is called for as effective solution, as kind of effective route to social justice without dismissing empathy, without dismissing kind of the the desire that so many of us seem to have for it, the kind of um, affective potential that, that seems to kind of be there. Um, and so... I guess what I end on is, is thinking about, um, you know, that, that actually this interdisciplinary um, ambivalent multiple approach to empathy in its relationship to other emotions and relations of feeling might, um, you know, not dissolve into something that's so diffuse and multiple that it, that it turns into nothing, but might give us techniques to really think about the affective nature of contemporary politics, to think about, the diverse and, and complex ways that emotions and affects are linked to political relations of power and to think about the, the ways that new solidarities um, might be formed. So I think I end the book by saying that, you know, if anything should be clear by the end of it, it's that there's no straightforward um, linear or unproblematic relationship between empathy and social justice um, you know, the, the generation of empathy can kind of divide, can exclude, um, you know, can participate in modes of violence as much as it can bring together um, and generate more positive relations of feeling. But perhaps, you know, in the midst of all of that, what remains is the kind of desire for contact, lines of communication, um, reciprocity and relationality that um, this attachment to empathy seems to signal. Um, and so I think the question I asked to end the book is kind of like, if empathy points to a, um, a fundamental transnational relationality that um, binds us all in, in complex ways where we are affected by and affecting each other, humans and non-humans in all sorts of different ways, then what types of affective relations do we want to create and, and pursue and sustain. Thank you. Now, before we part, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to discuss and let the listeners know about? Um, I, no, I actually think you covered everything. I can't think of anything 
further to add. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm happy to hear <laughs> that. Um, then I would like to ask you if you could maybe end by telling us a bit about what you're working on currently. Yeah, my current research um, in its very early stages is about the concept of habit. Um, and this comes out of uh, the, the book Affective Relations in, in different ways. I think especially towards the end of the book, um, that last chapter we talked about in terms of the science of empathy, I started thinking and reading a lot more about um, the less conscious, less willed um, aspects of empathy and, and affective relations more generally and, and their potential political significance. Um, thinking about affective habits, affective interactions, um, affective um, norms that are not necessarily about conscious practices of imagination or kind of willed conduct, but, but very much, you know, below the level of, of conscious subjectivity. And so I'm, I'm trying to pursue the concept of habit as one route um, to, to research that, to grapple with those issues further. That's very exciting. And I look forward to seeing what comes of that. Um, Carolyn Pedwell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much, John. Thank you.